Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years in that relationship for 32. And we didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. And I've been divorced almost five years, and together we have a phenomenal adult daughter who's thriving and doing fantastic. And today I am joined by one of my guest co-hosts, Dr. Bronwyn Wilson. So Bron, welcome back. Thank you very much, Mona. Um, <clears throat> hi, I'm Bron, and I've been married for 25 years. My husband was diagnosed 16 years ago at Tony Atwood's clinic. Soon after, I discovered that many of my extended and close family members were also on the spectrum. And that led me to want to know more about autism. So I left teaching and went into research where I investigated the difficulties of communication in neurodiverse relationships from an insider perspective. I interviewed and surveyed 400 people in neurodiverse relationships from all over the world and made some very interesting discoveries, which I'm now sharing with everyone in these podcasts and in my books. And I'm in the process of writing my second book with a third book planned after that. In our talk today, I'll be sharing some of the discoveries from my first book. Yay. Bron, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to know you and I am so excited for all the information that you have shared during the podcast that we've done together because I know the listeners are learning so much. And today is our last podcast together for now, but you'll come back when your second book is released. But today is going to be really interesting because we're going to talk about kind of the different, I'm going to say stages, but it's also kind of the ways in which neurodiverse couples can present or the life that they're leading. And mm. so I love, I love how you have named the most positive of phases or stages and you call it the Goldilocks zone. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you found that led you to call this the Goldilocks zone? What's happening for those couples? Well, <clears throat> I thought um, since our talk this time is all about choices and finding in that Goldilocks zone, zone, I'd like to give people hope because mm. given the right circumstances, neurodiverse relationships can do well. In my study, I found that there were people in neurodiverse relationships that were not only surviving but thriving. In my book I called this finding the Goldilocks zone because there is one. Mm. It's it are just right for people in neurodiverse relationships. And that's why I found uh, that's why I called it the Goldilocks zone. Because there is a just right for everyone. Mm -hmm. But people need to find it. Mm -hmm. I must say not everybody seems to find it, but some do. And the ones that do, I found, all seem to have a similar formula. You could say it's the formula for finding the Goldilocks zone. <laughs> <laughs> I have mentioned the five dot points that I put in my book before, and I'll read them out again in a minute. But first I would like to say something, and I need to give a bit of a warning here. Okay. Because that is, people on the spectrum may not really want to hear this, but they need to. Okay. From what I found in my studies and from everything that I read, it is that while both partners need to accept a diagnosis or self-diagnosis, it is usually more challenging for the person on the spectrum to acknowledge and accept it. Because after all, it is about them. Mm -hmm. They are the ones who need to come to terms with what it means to have a diagnosis or a realisation of being on the spectrum. However, it can be quite a challenge for some to accept, even when they, they get diagnosed. And they are the ones that tend to live in denial. And denial leads to an attitude of not wanting to accept 
not learning and not growing. And that attitude can only lead one way, to relationship breakdown. Another issue is that although both need to be motivated to change and be willing to put in the time, effort and commitment to working on their own side of the relationship equation, this can be another challenge for those on the spectrum. It is well known that the motivation to change can be quite an unwanted ideal, uh, ordeal sorry, mm -hmm. for many on the spectrum. However, this unwillingness can also lead to living in denial and not wanting to accept and not learning and not growing. It comes down to choices. Do you want to thrive in your neurodiverse relationship? There is a formula to do that. It is my five points in the back of my book. And I'll read them out now because this is really what I found from all my research of 400 people is it came down to these five points. Great. And that is... Go for point, it. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> be willing to accept and willing to learn about a diagnosis, even if self-diagnosed. That means both of you the autistic and the neurotypical person. Read everything, learn everything, become your own guru. Be willing to gain neurodiversity knowledge is the second point and to learn about each other's difference. That is what it means to be neurotypical if you're autistic and what it means to be autistic if you're neurotypical. And this is another difficult one for people on the spectrum, learning about neurotypicals. Mm -hmm. But it must be done because we need to know everything that we can about each other. And there is only one way to do that. Talk with each other. Yeah. Ask questions of each other. It's more difficult for those on the spectrum. I understand that. But it is worth putting the effort in when you get the chance to have a thriving relationship. Third point is tackle the relationship with a constructive mindset. Continually look for ways to improve things from your position. Don't wait for the other, make it a priority. Another one that seems to be difficult for those on the spectrum. Likewise, it must be done to get the chance to have a thriving relationship. That's the point that we're working towards. Mm -hmm. Number four is understand that typical counselling will never suffice. Support given from a lack of appropriate knowledge is not support. It does more harm than good. If you find that you need help, locate appropriate support. That is support from people knowledgeable in neurodiverse relationships. I can't stress this enough. There are also many great resources that can be found on the internet and of course, your um... my website. Go to my <laughs> website. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Go to my website because I list. I don't even know how many I have there now. Everybody who's been on the podcast who has expertise in working with neurodiverse couples, whether they're a therapist or a counselor or a coach, they are listed there with their website if they have one or their email and the episode that they were on, the link to that. So there's a wealth of information. And also you can go to the aane.org website and they have a certification process for counselors and therapists and coaches. And so you can see those folks that have gone through their neurodiverse relationship certification. So yes. we need more. We need more therapists. We need more coaches. Yeah. We need more counselors all over the world. Mm. But at least, you know, there's more than when I found out I was in a neurodiverse relationship in 2017. So. Yes, that's yeah. good that there's more. But, and like you said, we do need more because it's very important to get the right sort of help. Yes. <clears throat> and number five is most importantly, be motivated to learn about, nurture and support each other's individual needs. Your spouse and your family are the most important people in the world. Your words and your behaviour need to reflect that fact. This one puts it in a nutshell. 
but it requires the very difficult things of motivation to change and to decide not to live in denial. This is what we talked about last time in the last podcast, mm-hmm. podcast the intrinsic motivation to learn, to yep. lean into learning, yes. how to improve and grow. Thriving is possible then. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so let me, I mean, this is excellent. And again, I think it's so wonderful that what your results are telling us come from the mouths of neurodiverse couples and individuals in neurodiverse relationships. Mm. Nobody's research is perfect. You have done seminal work that will live forever in, you know, long before you are for forever, really. I mean, you've done seminal work. And I just want to, before we go on to the next kind of phase or zone, I want to talk about a few things. One, I, I want to hone in on the desire to change and how, how stressful and anxiety producing that can be for either partner or both partners. And I just, I want to say a few things around that. One, I know for, I'm just going to speak for my marriage and my ex-husband, when we discovered that we were a neurodiverse couple, I I was willing to change everything that needed to be changed so that we could be healthy and thrive, right? Mm-hmm. I wasn't afraid of change. I've never been afraid of change. <laughs> um, Me either. <laughs> right. And, and that may have to do with my, you know, um, ADHD traits, whatever, whatever. I embrace change change. I love it. It gives me a big dopamine hit. But what I kept hearing from my ex was, I am happy with the way I am. You know, he had lived alone for the first time in his life. Um, I need to have the freedom to come and go and do what I need to do and stay up as late as I want and whatever, all the things he wanted to do. And um, he wasn't willing to work together so we could both get our needs met, which was the last piece or last dot point. And I, I want both partners to hear, and I'm tearing up a little bit because this is so critical. And I say this in every neurodiverse couple support group. If you are not willing to change anything and you are not willing to understand your partner's needs their neurotype, their differences, their challenges, and you are just going to stay exactly as you are, whether you're the neurotypical non-autistic partner or you're the autistic partner, please do yourself and your partner a favor and leave the relationship. Because, and I say that from my heart, because if I had known and, and really... I guess my ex was telling me this, but I, I didn't believe him, I think, you know, because we had been married for, you know, 29 years when we found out and he kept telling me this is what he wanted. This is what he wanted. And it wasn't what I wanted, but I stayed separated for two and a half years and I suffered and he suffered, but we suffered differently. And I wish I had filed for divorce at six months because we said we were going to be separated for six months and come back together or end our relationship. But Mona stayed for another two years because that's what I do. You know, I keep going, but please, 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 everyone hear this. We all deserve to have a life that's filled with peace and joy, contentment, happiness, whatever the words are that you want to describe the life you want, you deserve it. Everybody does. That's a very important point, Mona. Yeah. Very important point. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I just had to stress that because I know what I did wrong. And if I could, or or I know what I would have done differently, if I had an opportunity to go back and change that, I would never have put myself through the two and a half years separation of suffering. I should have listened to what my ex was telling me and I should have filed for divorce. So 
but but then there are other folks who are like you said they're in the goldilocks zone they're thriving they're figuring out how to both get their needs met maybe in the relationship maybe with friends and family whatever they're figuring it out and that is so beautiful so i love that we're starting with the positive because the next two are not so good <laughs> right so yes. so so one of the things that I think is also important, and we were going to talk about this, that oftentimes in neurodiverse, neurodiverse relationships, like a tongue tied, um, we don't oftentimes recognize the positives, right? And so mm-hmm. in order to thrive in these relationships, we both have to recognize and share the positives that we see in our partner and the fact that they are in a relationship with us. It can't be one-sided if we're going to thrive, right? Hmm. Yes. Well, um, it's the recognition of needing help and appreciating it that Mm -hmm. seems to be a little bit of a tricky thing to stop the positives from happening. When I was first learning about autism and going to counselling, the counsellor said that we should consider me as a social secretary. Mm. Tony often talks about that too. The strength of the neurotypical person is that they are skilled at all things social. And if the autistic person recognises that and appreciates that, They can benefit from receiving the social training that neurotypicals can give. Most neurotypicals in neurodiverse relationships that I've um, talked with and know of, they desire to help. That seems to be the biggest thing is we as neurotypicals, we want to help. Right. Especially when coming to terms with what autism means and gaining an understanding. I found that the more that neurotypical people understood about autism, the more they wanted to support their partners. Mm-hmm. They see the struggle and they're often moved to help. The autistic partners in my studies <coughs> excuse me, that accepted the help and support from their neurotypical partners were the ones that were working towards finding the Goldilocks zone. It might mean that um, it leads to the relationship needing to be a bit more regimented with the need to take on roles that might not necessarily be the norm but neurodiverse relationships are not conventional so we need to sort of get away (laughs) from thinking that they ever will be and start to work towards what they really will be Mm -hmm. we need to find ways to make a new normal yes However, it takes an overcoming spirit to work towards the possibilities and not focus on the negatives. And that's what I found. um, Oftentimes, positives get overlooked and missed by people on the spectrum. And this is something that um, needs to really be considered quite a bit, I think. There's something that I discovered in my studies and in my own life mm-hmm. is that often people on the spectrum miss the positives. Positive comments often seem to go unheard. Trying to give support and help can sometimes be misconstrued by those on the spectrum as belittlement. Mm-hmm. They can even sometimes be in denial that a positive comment was said I've experienced that in my own life. And even though I know that I definitely did say positive things, often I'm read as if I didn't have anything positive to say at all and that I don't ever say anything positive. And that hurts because I know it's not true, but I'm not believed. And that that is a tricky place to be in. Yeah, and I think, and, and Bron, I mean, I think that, and we talked about this, um, you know, as we were preparing, I think that also goes both ways, right? And so I I think that is the challenge, because I hear this oftentimes from neurodiverse couples, I hear the 
non-autistic neurotypical partner say, um, I don't hear positive things out of my autistic partner. <clears throat> and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'll ask him or her, them, how I look. And it's, it's not, oh, you look beautiful. It's, you know, that's not the best color for you or your butt looks big or whatever. Right. <laughs> and, you know, they learn that's not a, 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 the best way to respond, but whatever, it takes time. So, um, and I know for my ex, oftentimes the words that would come out of his mouth, he'd start with the negative. And I know that part of that is, um, because there have been challenges and, mm-hmm. and when they start with the positive, I think sometimes it's not as easy. Like the, maybe they, they aren't comfortable with compliments themselves. So it's difficult for them to give compliments or positives. And that's one of the reasons that I asked for separation because the negative negativity and the negative comments were so overwhelming to me I just couldn't handle them anymore so for the autistic partner to understand that you may not think it's negative because you're just being truthful and honest and blunt but for Mm. us I really think that that's part of it for for those of us who are partners with somebody who's autistic that stuff can really hurt and for the for the neurotypical non-autistic partner, when we're constantly asking our partners to change and be more like us, that hurts too. Mm. So, right, that's why once you understand that you're a neurodiverse couple, there can be give and take. And um, one of the things that I've talked about is intention versus impact. And sometimes one partner or the other may read the partner's intention because of the impact, but that was not their intention. So they may say something like, I don't want to go see your family. And the impact is, oh, you don't like my family now when it's actually, I don't have any spoons. I'm overwhelmed. I've got three projects that are due next week at work, but that wasn't voiced right? Mm. That wasn't shared. So the intent was different than the impact. And when that happens often that the impact is harsh, it can, it can really create a lot of negativity in a relationship and lead to a lot of disrespect or feeling disrespected, feeling very vulnerable, losing, um, you know, trust in your partner. So I just wanted to add those things. And I don't know if you have anything else to share about those before we uh, go to the next topic. Well, I understand that people on the spectrum can experience a high state of anxiety. And so I think that's why their brain goes straight to the worst case scenario Mm. in those situations which is called called catastrophizing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and catastrophizing means having negative thoughts that can spiral extremely fast and it leaves you with the only worst-case scenario. I don't know if that's what wipes out all the positive comments that come your way, their way. Um, it might be something that happens um, <clears throat> so that the positives don't actually get through. But I've found, too, um, in my research that people on the spectrum also often experience high levels of, excuse me. That's okay. Cough. um, High levels of anger, rumination, which is repetitive thoughts with a tendency to dwell on frustrating experiences and recall past anger experiences. And this is something that I think can um, lead into not hearing those positives as well. Yeah. Because it's um, um, processing in a way that you remain focused on the cause of the stress and anxiety through repetitive and passive dwelling upon what is distressing you or past mistakes or regrets or your shortcomings and that can then 
um, lead to getting stuck because there's the inability to stop thinking about certain negative things. Right. And repetitive thoughts can look like worrying about something that might happen because it's happened in the past, mm -hmm. having difficulty getting past being angry or scared. Scared is another thing too. Um, continuing to ask the same question long after getting an answer to a question. Going over previous conversations or interactions in the mind, which is also known as looping thoughts. Repeating an action over and over again, which is also known as repetitive or restrictive behaviours. Repeatedly talking about something that happened a long time ago and giving the same answer to a different set of questions, even if it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be something that it, um, research has confirmed that people on the spectrum um, can get into that looping negative thinking. And I understand that's a human problem. We can all do that. Yes. But I guess people on the spectrum have more to get um, anxious and stressed about because of the difficulties of life. And so they can fall into doing this sort of um, thinking. And I guess that's then <clears throat> tends to push out those positives that come their way and they, um, to not be able to hear it when it happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for, I'm just going to speak to in my marriage, I often um, felt like my ex thought that I was being patronizing when I was complimenting him. And I don't think he needed a lot of compliments. That wasn't his love language. He didn't need words of affirmation. He really didn't care what other people thought of him, to be honest with you. And so, you know, I don't think he thought it was as important as it was to me. And I am a perpetual optimist. Positivity in my, you know, relationship is really important. Of course, there's going to be challenges and there's going to be negative situations we have to deal with. But I didn't want to be overwhelmed by negativity. And I do hear this in, you know, my support groups, both the couple support groups and the neurotypical support groups about the negativity. And, and I think there's an opportunity to change. And for those, again, that aren't in therapy, you know, I think this is a place where a therapist or a counselor or a coach can help because there's trauma, Bron. Mm. We all have some type of trauma, whether it's big T or little T trauma. And for somebody that's autistic and didn't know and didn't find out until they were an adult and they were living with unknown neurodiversity, the trauma could be big T trauma and little T trauma from their family, in school, in work, friends, other relationships, in the current relationship, and they weren't even aware of the amount of trauma. And so the trauma responses of, you know, fight, flight, or freeze, and fawn, which is the fourth one that a lot of people don't talk about, um, will happen in mm. any and and possibly every relationship you have and you aren't even aware that it's a trauma response. And that could be the negativity, which would be the fight trauma response, or mm. it could be the flight response, which is that you just leave the room or you shut down because you don't want to get it wrong. You don't want to, you know, be, um, you don't want to be involved in conflict, whatever. The, the freeze um, is similar to the, um, the, well, the freeze is that you shut down. The flight is that you run away. And then the fawn is people pleasing. You know, what can I do? What can I do to make it up? What can I do? You know? And so I experienced all those in my marriage, whether it was from me or my ex, but those are trauma responses. And somebody who's worked through their trauma and has a secure attachment and has, um, higher self-esteem and confidence and all of that can respond without those, you know, without that anger, without shutting down, without running away, without people pleasing. Mm. And what that looks like 
is probably something very few of us have seen on a regular basis. So it might be something like, I see you're angry, or I see you are not communicating in a way that I feel is respectful. I'd like to stop this conversation now. And let's think about a more loving way in which we can approach each other on this topic without screaming, without, you know, kind of changing your tone to be patronizing or whatever. But gosh, that's hard, Braun. Yes. <laughs> it is hard. <laughs> it's very hard. So you got to practice it with a therapist or a coach or a counselor and then keep practicing it. So I just wanted to talk about that a little bit because we know from all the research um, being done on trauma and trauma responses and trauma bonding that I guarantee you, everybody that's listening to this podcast has um, a lot of trauma in their past. Mm. Yeah. And they don't even maybe know all of it. So, yes. yeah. So any other thoughts? Well, uh, I guess the thing is with, um, with trauma, all those feelings then need to have an outlet. Yes. And like you said, unless unless um, you've had counselling and and work through these issues, I've found that that can sometimes lead to bullying. Yes. And this is a difficult subject to address, but I think it's important to address it in a respectful way because um, bullying and um, abusive behaviours are not something that we want to see no. by anybody. No. In any type of relationship, whether you're in a neurodiverse relationship or a neurotypical relationship or anything else, yes. It's not okay. Mm. I'm going to say this as a social worker. I'm going to say this as, you know, the podcast host. It is never okay to abuse another person and mm -hmm. you know if you're being abused whether it's emotional abuse financial abuse physical abuse sexual abuse you need to get help and i will put in the show notes the um the hotlines in the united states for um that you can call if you're in a an abusive relationship mm. but um <clears throat> that sort of leads on to a little bit of a tricky subject about bullying and we do hear a lot of, about people on the spectrum being bullied especially when they're in school uh -huh. and they get um, bullied too as adults as well but there's a little little talked about aspect of people on the spectrum also being the bully uh -huh. and this is a hard one for them to hear but it's important, I think, to be truthful and to be honest and to pull back the layers of these things because it's only then that we can really start to address the problems and work towards our finding our Goldilocks zone. Right. So <clears throat> what I have found is that since people on the, the spectrum experience difficulties with communicating and are very uncomfortable with change and have a strong need for predictability, their black and white thinking can lend itself to having narrow ideas about the way in which life should happen. When feeling wronged, their feelings of anger can be extremely intense, often leading to explosive rage and the conflict resolution strategy of an eye for an eye. When in injustice is perceived, um, <clears throat> people on the spectrum can have a tendency sometimes to use this eye for an eye approach with the intent of inflicting at least equal, if not more, discomfort on another as a legitimate means to achieve what they presume as deserved justice. This can lead to being a bully. I've experienced that in my life. Um, in my second book, I talk about a situation I had with my sister who did that same thing to me. She, um, <clears throat> she 
perceived something that I did in a different way to how I did it. And she set about trying to um, take me down basically because she saw that I deserved it. Mm -hmm. This sort of thing um, is not something we want to see. No. I understand that you know, people on the spectrum and neurotypical people both, you know, it's, it's not one or the other, um, can become um, bullies and not uh, treat other people with respect. But what I've found is that because people on the spectrum have a very particular way of thinking and get onto the one track, sometimes that um, leads them down that track of bullying because they're not getting off the track to see other avenues. Yeah, that, it makes sense. And I'm glad that you said, you know, both partners can be bullies or be bullied. And yes. I, I have said this on the podcast, but I think I have. Um, but I'm going to say it here too. Um, I remember my ex during our separation accusing me of being a bully. And I just was in shock. I, I couldn't understand, you know, what I had done that had made him believe I was a bully. And I asked him what I did, you know, that made him think I was a bully. And he couldn't give me anything. He couldn't give me any example of how I was a bully. But, but after understanding neurodiversity, I now think, I mean, he's never um, confirmed this. So if anybody who's autistic wants to confirm that this might be what it was going on in his head, feel free to send me a, an email. Um, I always knew what I wanted. And when I knew what I wanted, I went for it. And I, I believe that I always asked him to, you know, kind of chime in, to be involved in the decision-making. And more times than not, he said, whatever you want, whatever you want. Now, he may have been masking. He may have been going along because he didn't want to deal with any conflict. He was very conflict avoidant. But I think that was one of the reasons he thought I was a bully, because we ended up doing things because I was very confident confident about what I wanted and didn't have any fear about moving forward on a decision once I made it I was doing it and you know if it didn't work out perfectly I was fine with that and again we talked about this I embrace change so it was easy for me so I think everything you've said about the bullying piece is important for couples to to look at themselves first and see how maybe something they're doing could be perceived as bullying because I have heard over and over again from autistic partners um, in the neurodiverse couples uh, support groups that I run that they understand their bullying and they understand the pressure that they have put on their partners but now they understand why they did that. And oftentimes it was to maintain control of a situation, an event, their life, their home, whatever. So I think once we understand the root cause of any negative behavior, as long as we're not talking about, you know, abuse, ongoing abuse, which, you know, nobody should be dealing with or putting up with, but um, once we understand the root cause, what can we do as a couple to work together so one or both partners aren't triggered? Because like mm. if, if you have sensory sensitivities, right, lots of them, and you're at home and all the kids are crying and the phone's ringing and the TV's on, you know, loud and there's somebody knocking at the door. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you could become a bully easily. Right. So so I just I just want the listeners to think about this in context to when you are either being a bully or you feel bullied, what might have been the triggers? So just my two cents. Mm. Any other thoughts on that before we go on to the second kind of zone that couples can go into? 
Um, <clears throat> well, to sort of lead into the, the um, next zone, um, maybe all the negative thinking um, that goes on in all that sort of what's behind it all leaves no room in the mind for positive comments also. Mm -hmm. However, it's known that a heightened attention towards negative emotion is a characteristic of depression. Yeah. Evidence is emerging for a negative attentional bias in autism, perhaps driven by the high comorbidity between autism and depression. So depression is another area um, that can um, lead into this sort of uh, thing because sometimes it's not um, trauma or it is trauma and then getting depressed, but it might be depression as well. Yes. Yeah. And so the next zone is the first zone was the Goldilocks zone, which was thriving. And we would love to have every couple that chooses to stay together and work together to be in the thriving Goldilocks zone. But yes. the next zone is surviving. Mm. And, right. And, and tell us a little bit about what's going on in the surviving zone. Well, in my study, many participants felt that the difference between them were insurmountable. So they'd found ways to live separate lives while still being together. Several participants reported that they had become more like housemates behind closed doors mm -hmm. while acting and looking like a normal relationship in public. And a few participants reported that they had become resigned to their current situation and were trying to make their relationship as tolerable as best they could and others had completely disconnected, um, but were still together. Like some people even lived in different houses, but they still stayed married. Right. And I think that um, sometimes in this area of depression, sometimes that I think can um, lead to not dealing with the issues and problems in a way that's helpful to to try and get to that Goldilocks zone. It's kind of like um, just letting it all go kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Because a study on loneliness and depression found in the general population, suffering depression was a frequent trigger to experiencing a loss of pleasure. However, the exact opposite took place for people with autism. Both social and non-social loss of pleasure was found to be associated with a knowledge of autism symptoms, which set in motion the development of depression. So for the general population, depression leads to a loss of pleasure getting tongue-tied, okay. pleasure. <laughs> but for the autistic population, a lot loss of pleasure leads to depression. The study found that when an adult with autism perceived their behaviour as atypical or strange, this knowledge was found to lead to depression. Hmm. If I've I've found that if instead <coughs> oh, excuse me, an adult on the spectrum could consider their neurotypical partner as a social secretary and a support in all things social, accept the help offered, it may help to overcome symptoms of depression. On the other hand, depression may contribute to a low motivation to engage in contribute to, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. That's okay. And persevere with the ongoing interaction necessary to sustain relationship health. I found that there is a tendency of some people on the spectrum to say yes, but do no. In other words, to make promises to do something only to never get around to doing it. 
<clears throat> do you think that that is about depression or learned helplessness? Mm. I'm not sure about that one. But... Well, let, let me just let I just want to interrupt for a second because this was another big issue in my marriage. Um, my ex would often say that he would do something and then not follow through. And I realize now that that was a core wound that I had with my father because he did the same thing. And I've, you know, since discovered my father was autistic. He passed away a long time ago, almost 20 years ago. Um, and so I don't know. I, a part of me, again, I hear this from a lot of couples and a lot of the autistic partners that sometimes they'll agree to do something and because they really believe they can and they want to, but they're not sure they can get it right. So instead of having a conversation with their partner about the partner's expectations or um, that there's going to be a delay in getting it done, they just don't end up doing it. And that causes, again, a lack of trust, a lack of respect. It causes conflict. And that happened a lot in my marriage. So for the, the couples that are wanting to change this, I think it's really important to set each other up for success, you know? Mm. So if, you know, your partner needs two weeks to work on a project that would take you a day, is it a good idea for them to take on that project? And are you okay with them taking the two weeks to do it? Because I know I'm, I'm raising my hands right here. I had no patience because when I could do something in a day that took my ex-husband weeks or longer to do, and I kept having to nag him because I didn't realize how long it would take him to do certain tasks. And it wasn't because he wasn't capable. I'll tell you this right now. A lot of it was because he was such a perfectionist. And I'm oh. not, <laughs> you know, and I hear this from a lot of autistic folks that if I can't do it at a level of perfection, then I'm not going to do it. But then you got to communicate to your partner that you're not going to do it. So I think depression, learned helplessness, learned helplessness, wanting to do something and not realizing how long it's going to take or that you don't have the executive function skills or capacity right now because you have you know three other projects going on i think self-awareness brawn is so so critical to get oh, yeah. out of the depression to get out of that surviving mode because once you understand yourself and once your partner understands themselves then you can realize that there are some limitations that you both have instead of setting each other up for failure you set each other up for success by focusing on your strengths. Yes. Yeah. And the thing that, that I have discovered is that really, when you think about it, a neurotypical person and an autistic person, they are opposites, which makes a relationship very strong when you think about how it's got the two two strengths of each one together yes they could be a super dynamic team yes. when they understand the importance of each person's strengths and differences rather mm. than seeing them as challenges and and i think i've said this on the podcast before i think my ex-husband and i were the best damn co-parents I ever had seen when, uh -huh. when our daughter was young because we didn't even have to talk about who was going to take on which responsibilities. It just seemed to flow. And we just valued and respected each other's skills and strengths. Like my ex was really good at taking our daughter to the doctor when she needed her immunizations. I hated that. He just didn't feel the pain I felt when she was getting a shot, you know. He was really good in crisis situations, you know, and I was not as good. And so we just literally gave each other the space to do what we were best at when we were co-parenting in the early days, you know, maybe until she was like a preteen. And I don't know that we ever kind of had that groove in other areas of our life 
after, uh, maybe in the beginning years of our, our, of our marriage, but yeah. So how do you get in that groove? You know, where, where you're both focusing on doing the things that you're best at, right? Yes. And turning around the situation where you just like basic housemates living separate lives together. That's not, that's not a life really, is it? Well, I couldn't do it. And so, but I do hear from a lot of couples that they are in that surviving zone or stage. And I understand for some, Braun, it's really hard. Financially, they can't leave the marriage or the relationship or they have children and they don't want to, um, you know, destroy the household and have the children going from parent to parent. So Mm -hmm. I know one of my co-hosts, Um, talked about nesting where the kids stay in the house and the parents come in and out every week which I think is wonderful I think that's a wonderful um, way of making sure that the kids have stability but you know and there are a lot of reasons that people who find out they're with an autistic partner when they're older in their 50s 60s and 70s it's like do you want to start over I mean I'm 59 and I'm dating. (laughs) I didn't expect to be dating at 59. Um, And I can laugh about it because I met, you know, some really wonderful people, some really wonderful men. But did I expect to be doing this? No. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So so some people, I think, do choose to survive and then they Mm -hmm. can make it they can maybe they're not thriving but they come to a place of peace and contentment because they know this is the choice they've made and this is going to be the way their life is they're going to be roommates with their spouse or their partner and they're going to get their needs met or a lot of their needs met outside the relationship so yeah mm-hmm. so now are we going to the last which is probably the most challenging and that's deteriorating and it's not good so go ahead tell us a little bit about that yes well many participants in my studies lamented the demise of the relationship that they'd hoped for but had come to the realization that it was not an option for them As a result, some decided to solve the problem by remaining in the same house but live separate lives, which is basically what we've been talking about. But others lived in separate houses and continued to see each other, while a few decided that divorce was the only option. Although only a few participants in my studies had decided to completely leave the relationship, there is anecdotal evidence to just to suggest that divorce can be averted when awareness of the condition occurs and understanding grows because accommodation of the condition follows. Sometimes, however, understanding occurs too late to save the relationship. That is why my five-point formula is important to put into action before that happens. If we can make the choice to be motivated to learn about, nurture and support each other's individual needs in our relationships, we have the chance to avert families breaking apart. We do want families to thrive and stay together, but in a safe way for everyone. And if that means that we have to go our separate ways, well, we have to go our separate ways. But either way, more education and awareness has the potential to make things better for everyone. Yes. Amen. Yeah. And, and I think that when we get to the point, I mean, I'm divorced, not because we fell out of love, right? It, and I've said this before on the podcast, we sat at the courthouse ready to go in to file our divorce paperwork telling each other how much we loved each other. That's crazy, but it's the truth. And and I can tell you, I hear this from a lot of neurotypical partners in the support group. I love, I love my partner. I love my husband or my wife. I love them so much. They're such good people. I don't want a divorce. I don't want to end the relationship, but I'm at my wits end. And 
I think your five points, your five dot points are so important. And like I said earlier, please, 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 if you know you're not willing to change anything, be honest with your partner, whichever Mm. partner you are, whatever your, your neurotype is, be honest with your partner, be honest as soon as you know that. And then you get to decide whether this is the right relationship moving forward. And I can't stress enough, Bron, what you said about, you know, the new normal for a neurodiverse relationship is not going to be what, you know, your neurotypical couple friends might be experiencing. And your family might judge you, your friends might judge you, your church or synagogue might judge you, but your relationship is not a family project. It's not a community project. It is between you and your partner. So if you want to live in two different states, or you want to live in two different cities, or you want to live in two different houses that are across the street from each other, it doesn't matter. If you want to convert your basement into an apartment, and you only see each other, you know, for meals, or you only see each other on the weekends, and that's what works for you, do it. And figure out how you you have thick enough skin so you know you don't take personally what other people are saying about your relationship a neurodiverse relationship may look very 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 different and that's okay it's okay and that's what i want to do with writing my books too is to not only educate us in neurodiverse relationships but to educate everyone around a neurodiverse relationship so that they can understand more and not look at us as if we are strange and abnormal. Yeah. I And because- I commend you for that because the amount of research you have done has been phenomenal. Phenomenal. I guess um, it. I really want to... Um, basically say a big thank you to all my participants Mm. because it's their words it's it's their willingness to open their lives to me and to trust me with it that really made this possible yeah without them I couldn't have done it yeah that's wonderful yeah and 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 I want to thank them too because your research is like I said, seminal, it's going to lead to other researchers wanting to do this work. I do see you quoted Braun in other books <laughs> that I read, which is wonderful. And I think that the more we understand about how neurology affects individuals and how it affects you in your relationship and how different neurotypes, we all have strengths, we all have challenges, we all have differences and how we can get along. And hopefully, it probably won't happen in our lifetime, but at some point, you know, the conversation about neurodiversity will be so commonplace, just like more and more people are talking about mental health issues and depression and anxiety, and it's become something that people are more comfortable with and people are more knowledgeable about, just like the issue mm-hmm. of trauma, Trauma has also become part of the the norm now to be able to talk about it and to heal from it and all that. That wasn't the case when I was getting my PhD and I got my PhD in 2001. I don't think I ever heard once about trauma or trauma-informed practice. Not once. Maybe mm. P- maybe PTSD for veterans for like, you know, a sentence or something. But other than that, no. And that wasn't that long ago. So I think that we're on that path. And Bron, I know you're going to have um, a pre-release sale for your second book, right? When is yes. that pre-release sale going to take place? Do you know? Well, yes. As you know, I'm attending the writing retreat next week mm-hmm. to have, a, have the benefit of a concentrated time working on my second book. As part of the retreat proceedings... We will be organising a pre-release sale of the books um, that everybody's writing. We're all doing the pre-release sale um, all at the same time. So it means next Wednesday, Australian time, 
until my book is published. So for the for the gap between um, then and the the book being published, it will go on to my website as the pre-release price. Okay, so let me say this because this episode probably will not go out for a few weeks. So when you all are hearing this episode, the pre-release will already be on Bronze website. And you can go and um, pre-order her book. Is that correct? Okay. Yes. So it means that you won't receive the book until after it's published, of course, because um, it's still going through the processes of being written and edited. Um, But it means that they can get it at a cheaper price. And that will happen for the whole time till it's actually published. So depending on how long um, it takes to go through the processes and probably with this one, it'll be a little bit longer than last time because um, it is a a bit more of a technical book and I um, need to really work on it a lot to to make sure that it's correct and right before it goes out. So it's going to have a good amount of time to be at that cheaper price and then once once the book is published of course it'll go up to full price okay wonderful and this next book is focused on information for therapists and counselors and coaches and family members am i correct or did i miss somebody yes okay yes it's it's for all the people external to our relationship so it's for us as well in the relationship, um, but it's more focused towards giving education to those around us. So it's still what all the participants said that they want everybody to know. Right. So what they want counsellors and therapists to know, what they want their family and friends to know about the relationship so that we can grow that awareness and start to understand from not only an inside perspective but an outside perspective and grow the world's knowledge on what neurodiversity looks like. Love it. That's what the Neurodiverse Love podcast is all about. Your research, your books, my website, the conference I had in February. The more we get out to the world the more we are going to be able to understand each other's differences and accept each other's differences and that is what I really wish for that is my goal until I leave this earth because I see too much suffering among couples and among families and people are hurting and in some cases the hurt and the pain and the trauma may not be healed because the person ends up with a medical condition which leads to you know a debilitating life I've seen it over and over again for both partners and so I think I couldn't be more pleased and honored to have had this opportunity to have you be one of my guest co-hosts. I look forward to the next conversation when your next book comes out. And for those folks that want to reach out to Braun, the best place to get her is her um, website, which is braunwilson.com. Yes. And um, on there, there's my um, uh email address that they can contact me to if they want to talk to me and um, I'm open to having conversations with people and um, increasing our knowledge because that's like you said this is my my work I'm um, wanting to do for the rest of my life is to take this to wherever it will go and increase education and knowledge about neurodiversity but based on research yeah that's I guess my my thing is 
my research is what's the driving force, but um, it's about education. Amen. I am a teacher. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. And I spent 10 years, you know, teaching at various universities. And actually, my first major was education. So I guess I'm, I'm a teacher too, even though I'm no longer doing that. So Braun, thank you for sharing a little bit of your research and your results. Thank you so much for sharing and being vulnerable about your own personal life. And thank you for spending so many hours on the Neurodiverse Love podcast with me. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure for me too, Mona. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Me too. You too.